Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth and final week of our series on Matthew 13 called Pearls and Weeds. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we've come together and we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And specifically, we've been looking for the last five weeks at Matthew 13, which is really just focused in on parables. It's a series of, of seven parables, one after another. And, and this morning, we're going to look at the end of that chapter. So we're going to take a longer section, uh, verses uh, 44 through 58. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn it to, uh, open it and turn to Matthew 15 and, and I'd, or 13. I'd encourage you to keep it open throughout our time this morning so you could follow along with everything that we say. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you, and we'd invite you to go ahead and use that. It's on page 819. Let me begin by reading the passage we're going to look at, Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. And so will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood? All these things, they, uh, and they said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we do have to be here this morning, again, to celebrate what you're doing, to celebrate your gifts, but now also to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for your word, for the truth that is here. Father, I thank you that it is not the words of men or the opinions, but Father, it is literally the word of God that you speak that is, that is living and active, as the Bible says. And so, Father, I pray that you would now speak through your word and that you'd get me out of the way and just use me as a vehicle to communicate your timeless truths. Father, I pray that each one of us would have hearts this morning that are open and receptive, allowing your Holy Spirit to speak to us that which you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, earlier in Matthew 13, we read that, that all these crowds are following Jesus and, and uh, you know, news about him, about his teaching, about his miracles had spread throughout the whole country of Israel. And so now here at the end of Matthew 13, we're told that he now returns to his hometown, the town of Nazareth. And, uh, and it was on a Sabbath because he goes and he speaks at the synagogue. Now, one of the things that's worth noting is that Nazareth was a tiny little town. I mean, historians estimate that it was probably a two to 300 people total population. It's a tiny, tiny little town. And so you think that in Jesus coming back to Nazareth, 
you know, that it would be kind of this returning of this hometown hero. Here's this, you know, this guy from this tiny little town that nobody's ever heard of, and now he's like this teacher that has this national following that's, that's, that's known for his teaching his miracles. And, uh, and so you wonder even as he got up and as he began to teach, you know, how the, the leader of the synagogue would have introduced him. Several years ago, uh, comedian Steve Harvey was performing at a large outdoor uh, festival. And at the end of his act, uh, he was talking about what it would be like to introduce different people. And then he took a very unexpected turn. He started talking about Jesus and the difference that his relationship with Jesus had made in his life. And then, and then he said, what would it be like to introduce Jesus Christ? Uh, here's a video of what he said. So if you will just imagine with me if I had the pleasure of bringing out Christ. This is just how I would do it. It ain't got to be the way you do it. You might not think it's just right, but this is how I would do it. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce a man who needs no introduction. His credits are too long to list. He has done the impossible time after time. He hung out of a manger in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, by way of heaven. His mother is still headlining in the Catholic Church today. His daddy is the author of a book that has been on the bestseller list since the beginning of time. He holds the record for the world's greatest fish fry. He fed 5,000 hungry souls with two fish tricks. He has a headshot on every church fan across the country. Even before the kings of comedy, he was hailed the king of all kings, ruler of the universe, alpha and omega, beginning and the end of life and the Anything that's quite an introduction, huh? And you, yeah, you look at that, it gets you excited. Now, now that's a good introduction. I, I doubt if that's what they did for him in Nazareth when he was up at the synagogue. I mean, he's home time. I doubt if that was that. But what's interesting is what we do know, even from this passage, we're going to see that although he was received, he's a hero, it was a really short period of time before all those people in his hometown were rejecting him. 
Now, for the past five weeks, we've been looking at uh, Matthew 13, and this chapter is filled with these parables. And, and just in this one chapter, you have seven parables, one after another, and they're all kind of dealing with a similar subject, kind of de dealing with the same question. See, what we see in the beginning of Matthew 13 is Jesus had these huge crowds that were beginning to follow him, so much so that we're told that he actually had to get in a boat and push back to create space for, for him to be able to speak to these large crowds. And he begins by giving these parables, all of which are really challenging these crowds to say, okay, many of you are here listening to me. Not all of you are necessarily true followers. Because be, being someone who likes Jesus, who comes to hear his message, doesn't necessarily make you a true follower of him. And so, for example, in the first parable, we see the parable, the seed and the sower. And, and I think Jesus is saying, you know, I'm like this sower, this farmer who's out there casting seed. And the seed is powerful. The seed has the ability to change lives. But it's falling in some hearts that are hard. It's falling on other hearts that, that are rocky and other hearts that are, that are filled with weeds. And, and those hearts aren't letting the seed go all the way in. So it's not producing the fruit of a changed life. Those aren't people that really have accepted me. No, you've got to accept me so that, you, that life has changed. And now we come into the end and he says, with all this, it's this contrast between true followers and not. And he gives this last parable in, in, in 47 through 51 that he says that the kingdom of heaven is like this large net. And if you have your Bibles open, look with me again at 47 and 48. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted good into containers, but threw away the bad. Now here's the picture. He's talking about these guys fishing, and this would have been very familiar to the people that were there. Many of them were fishermen. They were by the sea. He was actually in a boat while he's teaching, probably a fishing boat. And so they had seen this done. It's not like, you know, when we think of fishing, casting out a line, that's not what they're doing. They would have this large net and, um, and they would have you know, sinkers on the bottom of the net and then they would have two or more people take the net and, and it might be between boats. Here it's a case where they're literally offshore and they're walking in and the, the net is such that it's gonna catch everything that they walk past. So when they get to shore, they have this big, you know, big group of fish that's caught up here. Now, this is still something that people use today. This idea that you've got these two people, this huge net, they're literally taking everything that, that passes by as being dragged onto land. And so what would happen then is they would drag it on land and they would take the fish that was, were valuable that could be eaten or sold and they would pour it into containers and you would have the others that they would throw away. And the next verse is Jesus then explains that and he's saying that that net is, is kind of like all these people that are being drawn into his ministry, all these people that are drawn into his teaching. In his day, it would have been people that were coming to listen to him. In our day, I think it might be people that are going to church or identify as Christians. And he says that group is gonna include true followers, but also some that aren't, some that are not followers, but are maybe mere fans. And so he explains it in verse 49. So will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. A literal translation there is the angels will come and separate the evil from within or from within amongst the midst of the righteous, saying that literally there are people that are non-believers that are mixed up in the middle of those who are believers in the kingdom of God or in the church. And it's an idea that we see, again, Jesus taught even here earlier in, in chapter 13 about the wheat and the, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And there he talked about there was an enemy that came and planted uh, uh, weeds that looked like wheat in the field. And the field is the church. And, and you have the wheat, the, the good grain, the people that are true believers. And you have others that maybe look like it, but they're not. 
And he talked about that whole idea. So it's something that he's been talking. It's the same idea here. It's this large net and there's fish of every variety. It's drawn in and it's not until the end that there's a separation between those who are true followers and those who claim. Again, it's not only here, but in another place in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had the same idea, or Matthew seven, I'm sorry, he had the same idea, where again, not all who claim to be followers are necessarily so. On that day, he said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will be people that will identify, even do good works, but there are some that are true followers and some that are mere fans. And there might be some people that would even kind of try to soften what Jesus is saying and say, well, what he's really saying is that there are people that are really committed, have a deep faith, and there are other people that don't really have much of a faith. But that's not what he's saying, and it's clear by what he's saying here. Because when you look at that, he's saying that there will be a, not only a sorting of the good and bad fish, but, but a judgment. Look at it again. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I know it's not politically incorrect or culturally acceptable to talk about something like hell, but we've got to be faithful to everything that the Bible says. As a pastor, I've got to teach God's word. This is God's word. These are the words of Jesus. And Jesus in grace and love speaks this, that there will be people who claim to be Christians who are not, who do not have a true faith, and he speaks in a warning to those who don't that if we do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, at the end of their lives, there will be not only a sorting, but a judgment. And those who do not have a relationship with Christ, there is a, he's, Jesus is warning us of the reality of eternal punishment, of a place called hell where we're separated from God for all eternity. And again, that's a truth that he speaks to warn us and to invite us. But also seeing that, that that's not a sorting right now, He's teaching us that this sorting doesn't happen to the end. And so what he's calling us to do is he's calling us each one to evaluate our own lives, our own heart. You know, it, do I have that true faith? Am I, is my life showing the fruit of being a true follower of Christ? Or am I just maybe a fan? And again, he isn't giving this to condemn, but he's calling us to evaluate our own hearts so that we can see what might be lacking if we don't have that true faith so that we can come to him and discover that true faith, give him that, 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 that place that, that he deserves in our lives. But now we might ask, well, how can I know? You know, if he's talking about this whole idea is about this sorting, how can I know if I'm a true believer or a mere fan? How do I know if I'm a good fish or a bad fish? And, um, and Jesus answered that question right here. In fact, if we look right before this parable and, and after, really the whole thing, what he's saying is, is here is a description and in the, right before and after, he says, okay, here's, here's what it looks like to be a true believer. And then we're gonna see at the end, he said, and here's a picture of those who are not a true believer, those that may be just a fan. So first of all, we see the, the, the you know, path or the picture of a true follower of Jesus. It's actually uh, in the verses right before this parable, we looked at last week in verses 44 through 46, there's these two other short parables, the parable, the hidden treasure, and the pearl of great price. And we looked at these in depth last week, but let me just briefly go over them again. It's kind of big ideas this week because they fit what he's saying. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great price went out and sold all that he had and brought it. 
Now again, what we're gonna see just real briefly kind of in, in, in review of this is that there are certain things that these parables are teaching. One is that it's talking about two different people and they both, both were confronted by the discovery of, of an ultimate treasure. And, and, and here you have the buried treasure in 44 and, and this guy isn't looking for it. It seems like he's just going through and he just stumbles around this buried treasure and suddenly, and, and suddenly he sees this is ultimate value. And I think that may be the story of some of us here. There might be some of us, we weren't looking for God, we weren't necessarily thinking of him, but in some way, and God in his time confronted us with our need. He confronted us with his truth. He opened our eyes to that truth and suddenly what was hidden from us, we now saw. The second parable is a little different because it's this merchant who's out looking for treasure. He's looking, he's trying to find the pearl, but to his surprise, he finds one of supreme value, one that is of great, far greater worth than anything else. And some of us, that may have been our story as well. You know, there may be some that you say, well, yeah, I was, I was looking for spiritual truth. And for some, it may be that you were looking and you were trying to, you know, you were maybe raised in the church and, and you were trying to, you know, figure out, okay, how do I put this all together and how do I understand? Um, you know, this was what I was raised with, it's not personal. You know, there may be others where maybe you weren't even looking in the church. You know, you were looking just outside of and, and, and trying to figure out, okay, there's something bigger than me. And yet in the midst of that, while you were looking, God surprised you and you suddenly saw ultimate truth, ultimate value. And so when you looked at this, it's confronted by this ultimate treasure. And when we look at that treasure, will we then, if we see it ultimate treasure, will we allow it to turn our value system upside down, to reshape us? Again, what we're told, these, this guy went out in joy and sold everything and to be able to buy this ultimate treasure. Everything that they owned, everything that was important to them prior to that, everything that they would have protected and, and suddenly they realized that these things were, were eclipsed by something of far greater value. And I love, I love the words in 44 and that first, you know, where it tells us that, that, that in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys the field. And it's joy. In any other setting, if you think about, you know, I've told you, you have to go sell everything you have, it'd be, man, that'd be torture. That'd be terrible. That would be, you know, that'd be painful. But here, he's doing it in joy. Why? Because he realized that the joy of the blessing of what he was gaining far, out, far outstripped any pain of what he was losing. He realized that God was turning his value system over, you know, over, over, over head over heels. And when we realized that, then the, he was willing to take this radical action. And when we realize that about Jesus, that in a sense that Jesus is, is the ultimate value, it will literally, to follow him means we take radical action. There's a sense that being a follower of Christ means that we sell everything we have to gain that one treasure. Why is that? As we've seen, one of the themes that is throughout this is he talks about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. And one thing about the kingdom of heaven is that it means that there is a king. And to become part of the kingdom of heaven means that I surrender to that king, that I make him king, and so that I make Jesus Christ the king, the leader, the ultimate authority in my own life. And here's what it means that we sell everything. I give up my self-control. I give up my self-determination. I submit myself to God and to his word. Now, that's hard. It's hard and the things that I think that I need and boy, the sin and or whatever, this, I, you know, I need this and suddenly to say to surrender to before God, that's hard, that can be painful. Unless we realize that in giving that up, we are achieving a far greater pleasure, a greater joy. And so that in joy, we should sell everything. That's what Jesus teaches elsewhere. Matthew 10, for example, 
whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. There is a sense that taking up a cross of dying to ourselves of saying, God, I give up control of my life. That's hard. But it just says, whoever finds his life will lose it. If we try to hold on to things and say, I'm not willing to sell it, we'll lose our life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's in giving it up, we find the true treasure. So being a follower of Jesus means that I, I recognize that treasure. I allow God to reshape my value system. I, I take the radical action of, of surrendering and, and giving him the right of word of my life. But how do I do that? How do I, what do I know what that looks like? And even how do I know that, that what I'm doing is, is following, in a sense, the right idea of Jesus? Well, that's, Jesus anticipates that, and he gives us the answer in, in the next verses, 51 and 52, about the true commitment of a true follower of Jesus. See, after Jesus gives these parables, he then looks to his followers, he says, do you understand these things? And I think he's not just asking, do you understand what I'm teaching? He's asking, are you applying it? It's not only do you understand that there's the you know, followers and the fa- you know, fans and, and there's two different people. Do you understand this and have you applied it to your own life so that you're looking at it and saying, do you know which category you're in? And so he asked, do you understand this? And, and there's, their response is yes. Yeah, we've looked at it and we, we basically we think we're good fish. We think we're, we're follow, true followers of him. And then he says in the next verse, 52, okay, well, if you're a true follower, then this will be true of you. He said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. First of all, he says that a true follower is a scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody who's read the gospels much, when you hear the scribes, that's generally not a good group of people, right? And it's generally pretty in a negative light. And you're like, well, why are we called the scribes? Who are the scribes? Well, in Jesus' day, the scribes were a group. They were kind of the academic elite. Okay, they were the, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the East Coast academic elite in a sense of, you know, they knew better than everyone else. And, and, and so they were students of the Bible, but they were legalists that, that had the letter of the law, totally missed the spirit, and was trying to tell everybody, we know the way you should live. Now, that was a group, a scribe as a whole, that was actually, a, a scribe was someone who wrote, who copied, who studied, by very definition, a scribe is someone who would study and copy and teach the Bible. And so we're not talking about the group of scribes. Jesus is saying, anyone who would follow after me should be a scribe. And what he's saying is that he should be a true follower of Christ, has to be a student of God's word. Why? How do we know the truth about Jesus? It's in the Bible. You see, for us today, we don't have a chance to go follow and hear him and listen teach. So, so how do I know who Jesus is? Well, I have to read the Bible. I have to, to follow Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible. And that's key. Because sometimes I'll talk to people and they'll talk about their own opinions about Jesus. Well, the Jesus that I believe in, I mean, we wouldn't talk about hell. Well, this one just did in the Bible. The Jesus I believe in wouldn't say that. He wouldn't do this. The Jesus I believe in would do this. He would approve that. And, and I hear people say those things all the time. And here's what you need to realize. If you're saying the Jesus I believe in and it's based on your own opinions, that's not the Jesus who is. That's the Jesus you want to be. That's a Jesus you made up in your own mind. That's actually you, that's not Jesus. The Jesus who is, is the Jesus that's in the Bible. 
And so we've got to look at it and it might not agree with everything, but am I going to let the Jesus who is in the Bible change my perception of what's true, even of what about Jesus is? See, for us, when he says that we have to be a scribe who is trained for the kingdom of God, he's saying that we have to be people who are committed to knowing and applying God's timeless truth, to spend time learning, studying not only about Jesus and the gospels, but studying all of God's word in, in the Bible, because that's where God reveals himself, that we need to understand this. Now, now, I will tell you, even as a pastor, as your pastor, this is a huge part of my job. My job is not only to be a scribe that studies, but it's to teach you in such a way to help you learn this. That's why, that's why we're committed to what is called expository preaching. That means that we, we take big sections of the Bible. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been there for a while, and we're gonna be there for a while longer. And we're going verse by verse, section by section. Why? Because I'm trying to model, in a sense, a, a process of studying the Bible. And every week we say, open up the Bible, keep it open so that you can see where the points come from. I want you to see, these are not my ideas, I want you to see, oh, here's where they come from. I can find those things. Because God calls us each to be scribes who, you know, that, that study God's word. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about this. He says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This should be all of our goal. And my goal of a pastor is not only to do this myself, but then to model it for you to help you become more of a student. Well, then as we do that, we will then be like a master of a house who brings out the treasure of what is new and what old. Now, we say, what is he saying there? Well, well here's, here's what's going on there. Many, most of the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were people who studied the Old Testament rejected Jesus. And here's why. They had preconceived ideas about what the Bible meant. And so they were focused on certain things and ignoring other things because they had these old ideas that this is Messiah. And when Jesus came and fulfilled the prophecies and pointed to the Old Testament, they weren't able to see it because they were so stuck in their old expectations, their old thinking. And it's possible that we could still be stuck in, in what my old thinking is that I can miss God's word, I can miss what God is doing. Now, it's the old and the new. I think, on the other hand, a problem that is probably more prevalent in our day is we have people that are so enamored with the new. So we're always saying, well, we've gotta make the Bible relevant. We've gotta make sure that it speaks to our culture, and so we can't say things that are offend people or drive people away. So therefore, we're so focused on the new that we walk away from the old, the timeless truth of God's word. And here's what we need to realize. We need to be committed to the timeless truth of God's word that doesn't change. We need to be aware of and accountable, not only to the Bible itself, but to the old, so that if the church has interpreted something a certain way for 2,000 years, I'm accountable to that. You know, I can't just say, well, here's something new, that what they, what they always thought the Bible to mean. Well, now I know it means something different. No, that's foolish. But while we love the Bible and while we love those old doctrines, we also have to work to apply the Bible to the new situations, to the challenges that we have, all the while testing that against the old. And this is an idea that's actually so important that, that, uh, and it's taught throughout scripture that, that our, our elders have actually taken this idea, it's one of our core values. So our ninth core value as a church is this, our last one. We commit to be uncompromising in the commitment to the timeless truth of God's word and to resist any cultural pressure to adapt our message to the contemporary cultural values. We're committed to the old, while at the same time seeking to be culturally relevant by appropriately adapting the methods we use in communicating God's truth. We're committed to the old of God's word, but at the same time we're saying, okay, how is speaking today? 
How do we adapt to what we do, never compromising the content, but adapting our message? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, everything that he said up till now has been talking about, okay, there's this, this net, and here's the good fish and the bad fish, the true followers, the fans. And so we're seeing this is the picture of the, of the true follower. How about the fan? How about the, 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 those that aren't the true, you know, the, uh, the true followers? Well, we see that now illustrated in the people of Nazareth. Nazareth. When he goes back and, and this hometown synagogue, look at how they respond to him. In verse 53, when he had finished speaking these, these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? And it's, it's not his mother called Mary and I know his brothers James and, and uh, Joseph and Simeon and Judas. I know his sisters with us. And where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many works there because of their unbelief. Now here's what I want you to see. It's not talk, only talking about the people that were at Nazareth, but all the people that then were coming to hear him that didn't have true faith and all the people that necessarily may identify as, as Christians, all of which necessarily, some are just fans. He said, okay, what is it that we know that when we don't have that true faith? And the first thing that you see here is that even when we don't, we're still drawn. Many people are drawn to Jesus by his wisdom and his power. See, what does it say in verse 454? They were astonished and said, where did this man get wisdom and these mighty works? They were drawn to him. When you think about all the people that were coming to hear Jesus, they were drawn to him. He's not talking here about the religious leaders who rejected Jesus outright. He's not talking about the Romans who would be like the atheists of our day that have no interest in God. No, he's talking about people who were drawn to him, who liked something that he said, some aspect of his message. But here's what we need to realize. We could be drawn to him and still then find some reason to question or to doubt. They're amazed at what he said and did, but at the next breath, they begin to question, even scoffing at his claims. Look at 55, 54. They say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get these things? Now, basically, they're founding reasons for doubting. And they're drawn, but they're saying, but he's making these claims, and I don't want to fully buy into these claims. So, he, so here's a problem. And people still do this today. See, I'll hear people that, well, I know this and I like this, but how can you really believe all the miracles? How can you believe that a fish followed a man? I mean, that's hard to believe. I mean, how can you believe that, you know, that God inspired the Bible so that it's without error? I mean, it was written by men. How can you give it that much authority? Or something I hear really commonly today is people will talk about, well, yeah, I know that was what God said then, but, you know, our culture's time has passed and, and the progress of time and our culture's evolving and, and, and what they're saying is that as we've evolved culturally and morally and ethically, we have to reinterpret the Bible to fit our time and our culture. And so the Bible isn't really timeless truth, but it's a truth that was shaped by the culture and values of its day and we have to reinterpret it by our day. And what we see is that like them, we're drawn towards something about Jesus. These people are, but yet when he claims authority over us, we start to question. And especially when we take authority over us, we, become, we can become affront, uh, can, uh, offended when it confronts something. So again, here's what, they, they didn't like the fact that Jesus was speaking truth that he claimed was absolute, truth that they had to answer to. 
See, when they were saying things that they agreed with, they're like, man, we love him. He's a great teacher. And look at the miracles. But when he said things that confronted them, man, suddenly they have a problem. And again, I see that today. I'll see people that will come to Jesus and, well, I like this and I follow him and I follow, well, in this one area, I just, mm, I don't really agree. I don't think it's relevant today. I agree with most of the Bible, but let, let me challenge you. Even if you say I agree with 99% of the Bible, there's these few things that aren't relevant that, that, I, don't think, that, that I think have changed. See, if you're saying that, then you are the ultimate authority. You are the one to say, I have the whole Bible and I can decide what's right, what's wrong, what, what is relevant, what's not. I have the right. It's not that I'm looking at the Bible and it judges me. I have the right to take the Bible and I have the right to judge it. And we're not submitting to God's authority over us. And ultimately, even with some of those people, you know, you've got to say it's, it's, not, it's not what you do when the things you agree with, it's how you respond and the things you disagree with. The question is, do we believe Jesus enough to surrender to his authority? Let me point something out even in here, because it says in 58 that at the end, he did not do mighty, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, why did he do so few miracles? Think about this. It doesn't say that they didn't come to him. No, it, it kind of implies that they're coming to him to do miracles, but he's choosing not to do it. Why? Because of their unbelief. Now, think about this. What this suggests, they came back and they're amazed by his teaching, they're amazed by his power, so they're coming to him to miracles, but at the end of the day, what they're doing is they're saying, Jesus, I believe in you enough to come to do miracles, and I want you to heal this problem, but I don't believe in you enough to surrender this area of life. And I think what they were doing is, Jesus, I've got this sickness, come and heal this, and he looks at him and says, okay, well, here's this area of your life that you need to surrender, it's out of line with, with my teaching. And they're like, no, I don't want you to touch that area, I just want you to heal this area. You see, I, I believe in you enough to, to fix the thing that I want you to fix, but I don't believe in you enough to surrender to your authority in the areas that I don't like, that I, that I want to maintain control. And people still do that today. And there may be some of you here, that's the issue that you're coming and you're saying, God, I don't want you to fix this, but I don't want you to go, I don't want you to go here. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to step on in this area of my life. And again, either you believe in him enough to surrender to everything or you don't really believe in him. Either you are you know, embracing him as king and lord of your life, or you're rejecting him as king and lord. There's no in between, and that's what Jesus is saying here. That being said, let me encourage you here. This it sounds like harsh words, but I want you to see even in what Jesus is saying, these are not words of condemnation, they are words of invitation. It is not Jesus saying, boy, some of you aren't here and I'm gonna throw you out. He's not, he's not going back to the net. He's not sorting right then and there. He's saying one day the sorting's coming. So look at your own life. Now here's something that you see that it's just, it's easy to miss this, but man, it's so beautiful when you see it. Look at, look at back in... Uh, in 55 and 56, it says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Are not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simeon and Judas? Are not his sisters with us? The Bible's really precise. Why does he list the brothers' names? Why does he put the names there? He says the sisters, he doesn't list the sisters' names. Notice that James is first. James was almost certainly not the oldest. Why is James first? You know Why? We read from the Gospels that we know that the brothers didn't believe in Jesus. They were fans. They liked, they liked the popularity. They didn't believe in him. They didn't follow him. That, but when we read in 1 Corinthians that when Jesus rose again, Jesus appeared to James. 
We read these brothers and we know James not only became a believer, became a leader in the early church, he's the guy that wrote the gospel or the, the, uh, the book of James. You ever, the little book in the end of the New Testament, Jude? That's Judas, that's, that's the other brother, another brother here. These guys became believers. Now here's the beautiful thing, is that it's telling us even here, that if we look at that and you say, no, man, I'm, no, I'm not there, I don't measure up, I haven't, haven't walked with him, I haven't surrendered, I, I, know, you know, that I know that my life doesn't produce the result of this. He isn't condemning us for this, he's inviting us to say, can pointing this out so you can surrender, so that you can know the pearl of great price, so that you can have this relationship with me, and it's never too late. And even people that were, you know, people like James and Judas, who were, you know, opponents and, and mocked Jesus earlier on, he says, no, I can change their heart and I can actually make them a leader of the church. And that's true with any one of us here. You see, these are words of invitation. In a moment, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna end with communion. And, and even in what this communion is, it's a reminder of this invitation that Jesus died and and we take this bread, which is a symbol of his, of his death, and we're gonna pass it up. And as Jesus as, you know, was, was the, the sower and cast seed out, and the question is, okay, the seed is powerful, what is the nature of your soil? And so we're going to pass this out, and it's gonna be passed to each person here. And the question is, have you ever received Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in him for your forgiveness? Have you surrendered to him as not only the one that would save your sins, but as the Lord of your life as king. If you've never done that, he invites you today, even through this symbol. And for some, you maybe have done that in the past and you've kind of taken things back over and you kind of have control and, and he's saying, okay, ma'am, I'm, I'm a follower, but I'm acting more like a fan and this is a time again that he's not condemning, he's confronting so that he can heal. And remember, come back to the cross, come back to this intimate relationship that he has with us at the table not based on what we've done, but based on our admission of our need and our acceptance of what he has done for us. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day and we'll see you next week.